This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. On this special off-cycle episode of The Green Box, we have a special guest. Hello, Allison. Hello, Will. Now, Allison, you and I have known each other a very long time, but uh, the listeners have just met you, so why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, certainly. So I have been, I think I've been running uh, role-playing games for pretty much the time that I have known you, which is, as you say, a very long time. I have an extensive background in theater, particularly improv theater. I'm engaged in storytelling endeavors of all different kinds, and I also do teaching. So now, given your your extensive background in theater and acting, and given that it's new GM month in January, uh, I wanted to invite you on the show to talk about the way, the very particular way that you run tabletop RPGs, and and in what ways those overlap. So, um, yeah, how how does your how does your background in theater inform the way you GM? Gosh, that's just such a big question. I'm not sure where to start with it. Well, I mean, we've got a whole podcast to play with. Excellent. Um. Okay, so I've been giving I've been giving a little bit of thought about how to try and summarize some of my opinions on this, and I think that one of the biggest differences in the way in which we tell stories is the fact that in most kinds of media, in most forms of storytelling, there is a writer, there is a a director, whether it's a whether they're different in film or the same in story in like writing a book. Um, there's somebody who creates the narrative, somebody who drives the narrative, and then the individual players who take part in the narrative. And that feels like a very natural distinction of roles that we're all familiar with. And so when it comes to a tabletop RPG, it feels very natural that the GM falls into the writer-slash-director role, and the players each fall into the roles of individual characters, individual actors in the narrative. And what's different in improv theaters that you don't have a writer and you don't have a director. Those roles simply don't exist. Well, uh, do, do they not exist, or do they, I, I would say they sort of get um, crowdsourced to the entire cast. Well, yeah, that's kind of where I, where I, was, where I was going with that, is that it, those responsibilities then have to be divvied up amongst the individual people that are playing roles as well. The, the responsibility for determining what the story is and how it unfolds falls to the people who are also acting that story out. So I think in terms of a role-playing game, what that means is that my style of telling a story is that I don't necess- I don't usually come to the table as a GM with a story that I want to tell. I come with an enthusiasm for supporting my players in telling a story that they want to tell. I remember the very long-running Star Wars campaign that, that you ran for our group. I don't think you did really much in the way of preparation at all for that, did you? You just kind of did it off the top of your head. I specifically remember the first time we got together as a group. It was um, you and me and our uh, respective girlfriends at the time. And I had just come up with the idea of, hey, maybe I can convince you guys to try a Star Wars RPG with me. Let me introduce you to the system. And if I'm really successful, maybe get you guys to build characters. And we did a character building session. And at the end of the session... Everyone said, wow, this sounds really cool. We're super excited. Can we start? Yeah. (laughs) 
And I was, I was just like, I, you guys understand that I have put zero thought and planning into this. I didn't even think I was going to get you guys to make characters today. And you're like, okay, that's great. Can we, can we play now? If I could, if I could butt in, how did this go? Did it go well? God, it went for what three years? Okay, so exceptionally well. It went three yeah. years and three systems, didn't it, Allison? Because we did um, the old uh, – no, not Saga, the one before it. Pre-Saga. Pre-Saga. Like, like West, West End Games or something? No, or? not West End Games. There was like a – like, it was basically just D&D, but Star Wars reskinned. Ah, gotcha. So you guys had very little prep, and then it went on for three years. So, well, what's, what's the secret? Well, I, I mean, the reason – I was going to say the reason that it only went on for three years is that Will moved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then it became difficult to we we struggled to overcome playing online. I think if we ha if if Will hadn't moved, we would probably have gotten another couple of years out of that game. Oh, easily. So what's the what's the secret to that? Well, the secret is what happened on that very first game, is that I think that a lot of GMs feel that they have the responsibility to craft the narrative. They have to figure out what the story is, create the plot, set up interesting characters, create this whole sandbox for their players to play in, and then, like, starting up an online role-playing game, uh, like, a, like a video game, load their characters in, and then you already have this pre-constructed world that you can interact with. But when you outsource a lot of that responsibility to your players, I believe that you guys said, well, we want to play. Can we just start right now? And I said, yes, we can. What do you want to do? You guys have created characters, and they all kind of have a, a similar goal in mind. So where do you want to be, and what do you want to be doing? That helped a lot, because we were all on the same page as far as what it was we wanted to be doing, which was Hustle in Space. And so that probably made it a lot easier to to um, to improvise a cohesive, a somewhat cohesive uh, campaign game out of basically nothing. This sounds like the premise of a lot of like Powered by the Apocalypse games, because it's just sort of like, let the players decide what's interesting, and then the GM just riffs off of that, and you just go and you feed back and forth off of each other until, you know, until conflict happens, and then dice happens, right? I think that something that really stands out for me with the Powered by the Apocalypse games is how many mechanical abilities they will it will put into players' hands that allow them to affect the narrative, the setting, the plot. Um, I'm running a Buffy the Vampire Slayer game in Monster of the Week at the moment. Oh, heck yeah. And one of my players has a spell. One of the effects that she reliably uses is the character drops something important that you then find. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's good. I mean, sometimes she uses it on a character that I have in mind already. What might be important and so they she just kind of fast tracks the story in that way but a lot of times she uses it on people that she just goes they drop something important and i go okay great what do they drop let's <laughs> turn it back on her yeah that's, that's good and i i mean honestly it sounds simple but one of the biggest struggles one of the reasons will that the star wars game that i played with with you was and remains one of the most impressive games and satisfying games that i've ever run or played in was because everybody had that willingness to participate in telling a story. And that's not what all players want to do. No, for sure, yeah. A lot of players don't feel comfortable with that. They just want to sit down and be told a story and play their role in it. And I've had a lot of gaming groups fall apart because I've said to people, what do you want to do? And they just haven't had an answer for that. 
I really like that that what you that that anecdote you just gave about turning the the important object back to the player to say, well, what what do they drop? That's that's really good. That's a thing that you could really do, uh, in in a lot of situations in response to a player doing something to interact with what you thought was a nameless background NPC, but suddenly they fixated on us being the obvious next clue. That anecdote makes me think of something Grant Howitt, the designer of Spire, once said. He said a surprising amount of GMing is just asking the players what they want and then giving it to them. I would like to share an anecdote from this, another anecdote from this game, because I think that it may be the single most satisfying hour of GMing that I have ever done. I ran a session that had one continuous hour in which I did not say a thing. Wow. Ooh. So the premise here is it's a Buffy game, so there's magic and weird things happening. Only 90s kids will get this. And this was the obligatory body swap episode, and all three characters had had their minds swapped into other characters' bodies. And it's a Buffy game, so it's set in high school, so they've got the supernatural element, but they've also got the like classes and family and friends element going on. And so they were all kind of bumbling through, trying to live each other's lives and not mess everything up too much. And one of the reasons that I wanted to include this is that this was still fairly early on in the game, and their characters' backgrounds and home lives and things had not been super fleshed out at this point yet. Uh, they hadn't shared it with the other players, and they hadn't really put an awful lot of thought into developing it themselves. So at the end of this uh, in-game day, everybody was going back home to their families. And we could easily have just kind of rushed through that and said, you know, moving on to the next day where we do research and, and fight more monsters. But what I asked of each of them was for the for the player who was normally controlling their character to kind of become the GM briefly for a little scene where the new character, the new player who was now currently controlling their character because of the body swap went home. And the person whose character it actually was described what their home life was like, what their parents were like, kind of role-played their parents in, in interaction with them. And the player, like, inserted into this character had no context for what was going to happen anyway, so they just kind of had to bumble their way through trying to pretend to be who they weren't and interacting with parents and family members and a house they weren't familiar with. And in the process, all of that character's backstory was established by them acting it out. And we had three different characters in three different home lives, so we just had three different scenes where each player took on the role of GM for another player running their own character. And I, as a GM, hadn't constructed any of this, didn't have any knowledge of what they had in mind for their own character's backstory, so I just got to sit back and let them interact kind of with their own character through other NPCs. And it was such a fascinating and enjoyable experience to watch. I had a, a similar sort of experience one time when um, in Delta Green there is like a the dedicated mechanic for home life. I'm sorry, I should back up. Uh, are you familiar with the structure of Delta Green, Allison? I mean, I'm vaguely familiar with it, but I haven't played it, so I, I'm not familiar with the, the specific We'll, we'll fix details. that someday, get, Allison. Get, get Will to run it for you. He's pretty good at it. Um, 
there is a actually a dedicated sort of mechanic for people's home lives in the form of bonds, which are like people who are important to the player character. And um, it's it's a system that uh, it's as engaging directly proportional to the amount of effort that you put into it. Um, some people just kind of hand wave it and other people like take great stock in it. And one point in time, I had players playing the uh, the bonds, the people who are close to the player characters' lives, and we sort of did home scenes that way. Um, at the at the end of a game, you get a home scene, which is like where your player character kind of processes what's happened to them, and they project this sort of uh, the loss of their their sanity and what's gone on in their life. They project it onto those bonds, and it's fun to let other players play out the bonds which is kind of similar to what you were talking about with the Freaky Friday thing. Yeah, um, the Freaky Friday plot allowed for a really interesting take on that, which is hard to do in most systems and most settings, in which, because that's, a, like, you often have the, the player plays their character and the GM runs the NPCs that are important to them, and as you say, you can kind of take that a step further by making it the player plays their character and other players play the NPCs. Right. Uh, in this particular instance, it was the player plays the NPCs, ah, and yeah, somebody that's a, that's else is playing version. their character. But it's not weird because there's a plot reason why they're not in control of their own character. That's a good inversion. Also, I love I love Freaky Friday scenarios. I've written a couple of them. <laughs> uh, I think the thing that satisfied me the most about setting that up is it's something that Monster of the Week specifically encourages. Is when you're talking to your players. Um, referring to them by their character names rather than their, yeah, their actual names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's common in a lot of role-playing systems, but I believe that the Monster of the Week rulebook was the first one in which I've actually read that written down in the rulebook as something that it encourages. Um, There's a lot of good ad advice in Powered by the Apocalypse books that can be generalized to a lot of different systems. Like a lot of what I've picked up about how I run not only Delta Green, but also Dungeons and Dragons, I picked up from when I finally got a hold of the the Dungeon World rulebook and I started flipping going, oh, this is, this is pretty good. I agree. I think that you could become a better GM and a better player just by reading through Monster of the Week or one of the other um, Apocalypse game books, even if you never actually play the system. I say that all the time. Yeah. Jake is a big fan of uh, the, the clock system in Blades of the Dark, and we, we did a segment on how, how that can be generalized. A lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, they have that best GM practices, and it's not exclusive to that uh, to that system of, of rules. Like, the best GM practices are almost universally applicable. But I do have a sort of discrepancy because you were talking about, you know, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse is uh, where you share the narrative and you have the conversation. Um, and to me, Delta Green, which is primarily what our show is about, so forgive me if I, if I talk about it too much. But um, No, of course. Uh, it has more of a structure to it. It has more of that traditional structure like you were describing where the GM is mostly the director and the player characters are mostly the uh, the actors taking, you know, going through the scenes. So it's kind of harder to have that sort of uh, free form of, you know, letting the players have a better hand, a greater hand in like what happens to their characters. Sorry, I was going somewhere with this and I forgot. Well, I'll bounce off what you have said and say that I, I'm not familiar enough with Delta Green to make direct parallels between it and Monster of the Week, but I know that the structure in Monster of the Week is very much based around the idea that there is a monster of the week. Title drop. Yeah, I know. And it 
wants to accomplish something, it has goals, and there may be a a longer recurring narrative, like an arc, that relates to something else behind the scenes with goals. And so the structure of the narrative does have that kind of Scooby-Doo, Buffy, mystery style to it, where when you're creating the game, you can't really just fly entirely by the seat of your pants. You have to have some idea of what the monster is and what its goals are and how they beat it. Which right, yeah. In, it, I, I imagine um, draws some parallels to the sort of ongoing mysteries and monsters and conspiracies um, that I'm familiar with in Delta Green. But I find Monster of the Week interesting because it has a broad structure that requires that sort of um, pre-planning. And yet moment to moment it's full of advice to the gm it's like don't plan too much plan a little bit um come up with the monster come up with a broad idea of what it wants to do if people don't interact with it and leave it alone and then when your players do interact with it or do interact with the world or whatever say yes and um that's a big phrase from the theater improv world is that when you're doing improv performances with somebody else, you never want to say no. You always want to say yes, and. So whatever it is that I introduce to the scene, whatever it is that I say is true about me, or you, or the place that we are, or what we're doing, whatever it is that I introduce, if you say, no, that's not true, then you just stop the interaction right there, and there's nowhere else that we can go. But if you say, yes, that is true, and also, and then introduce something new, then we keep the story moving forward. So with my Monster of the Week game, every week I come up with a monster that wants to accomplish something and I have an idea of what its goals are, but I also break them down into the really important stuff that I am not terribly willing to um, compromise on, and I try to keep that stuff as simple, as minimal as possible. And then the other stuff that, in my mind, this is what it wants to do and this is what it's going to accomplish. But I think it's really important as a GM to not be too married to your preconceptions about how you want your story to go. Right. Because the more flexibility you have about, well, I think this is where we're going, but let's find out, the more agency you're willing to hand back to your players when they say, ah, well, I cast this spell and make the monster drop something important, and that important thing is a key that lets us get into this place. It's very tempting to say, no, I, you're not supposed to get that yeah. key till later on. That's, that's the quest object. Right. I'm, I'm recalling a lot of like, uh, like D&D subreddit, like horror, the people's have these so-called horror stories where they're like, the players have completely derailed my campaign. Yeah. Like, where do, where do I go from here? Or what do I do? You know, they weren't supposed to find this yet. It's been ruined. And I think that that's like, every time I have that conversation with someone, my encouragement is always to say, because I, I think that... One of the reasons that people are so married to the idea of keeping their, their story on a rail is because they feel like the responsibility is on the GM to create the whole story. So you come up with this elaborate dungeon, this elaborate quest to go kill the wizard, and when your players step off the tracks, that means they want to go in a different direction, which means you now need to create a whole second plot, which will only last until they step off that plot, and it's an exhausting, endless amount of work to keep preparing all of these involved stories that you don't even know that your players are going to follow through on. Right, yeah. But I think that it becomes a lot less scary when, you know, you create this elaborate plot to go and kill the wizard, and 
five minutes into the campaign, your players have decided that they want to overthrow the Merchant Guild and get involved with those politics. And you're like, but I didn't, I haven't created any Merchant yes. Guild politics. It's like, well, you don't have to. Your players have expressed an interest in this, so hand some of the responsibility back to them. Say, okay, you want to get involved with the Merchant Guild politics. Who are the major players in the Merchant Guild? What are, what are you, how are you going to interact with them? Rather than looking at that from the perspective of, well, I, haven't, I don't have anything for that, you rather you, you look at it from the perspective of, hey, look at that, my players just did all the work for me. Yeah, and I think we'll, uh, to come back to one of the things that made our Star Wars game run for so long is because I never had to prepare a plot. Every time you guys finished a story, the next step was me saying, okay, what do you guys want to do next? You guys are running con, you guys are conning people, so what con do you want to run, and who are you going to run it on? And oftentimes we'd start with you going to a fancy party or something to scope it out and figure out who you wanted your next mark to be, and I would off the cuff come up with a few different NPCs that were really nothing more than an alien race and a couple of quirky mannerisms, and then you'd pick up on one, you're like, oh, I really like the way that that guy talks, That that's really cool. And so you'd hone in on him, and then together we would create who that person was and, and how they fit into the story based on what it was you guys as a team of players wanted to accomplish. What helped a lot with that too is that uh, you and I sort of have, we're working from the same playbook, because Allison is the person who got me interested in, in, in Hustle, which is a great TV show I've talked about before. Oh, yeah. But uh, if, if I were to say to Allison, well, I think I think what we're going to do is we're going to try the dog in the bar, you instantly know what that means and what to set up. Which I think circles us back around to, if I was going to give one piece of advice to a GM, honestly to any GM, but especially to a GM who is interested in coming at their craft from a more improvisational perspective, I would say that the most important aspect is a strong session zero. And I think that there are a lot of people that do good session zeros, but I don't think, I think that there's a lot more that people could be getting out of their session zeros than they necessarily are. I think a lot of people see it as a a time to get together and build their characters together so that they all know what they're doing and to learn a bit about the world and the story from the GM. But for me, session zero is the point in time when I sit my players down and I say to them, what do you want? We are all going to be collaborating together in telling a story. And if it is your expectation that I will have done all of the work, created all of the world, and you will simply spawn into it like a video game and then just start interacting with things and have a story prepared for you, this is going to be a disappointing game for you. And I've had a lot of games that fell apart because players weren't, players were not, they said they were interested in trying out my thing, but it just didn't connect with them. Um, but I think that it's really important to sit down and say explicitly, I want you to have agency in this story, but that also means that I want you to take responsibility for this story. So we are going to be collaborating to tell this narrative together. So please, while you are creating your characters, have a shared background, have a shared goal, know what it is that your character wants. Because if you can't stand in the middle of an empty room 
and have at least some idea of what is motivating you, where you want to go next, what thing you want me to create for you, then we're kind of going to be sitting staring at one another awkwardly for some time. But Allison, my my character is a uh, you know a lone wolf. Yeah, yeah. I just want to doesn't want to do anything. I want to sit at the table in the corner and just just drink my ale and brood. <laughs> well, if that's going to be an issue, I think that it's much better to uh, establish that that's going to be an issue and address that issue yes. before you've made that character. <laughs> because I can have that conversation Al- with you now and say, yeah, no. Allison, are you saying that I should make a character who wants to go on the adventure? I am not just saying that you should make a character that wants to go on this adventure. I'm saying you should make a character that wants to go on their own adventure. Man, I'm I'm so glad to have you on the green box and just like validate everything that I've been saying for the last three years. I should have had you on earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the reason that we got along so well in game yeah, is because is, yeah. we have very much the same attitude. And it's been it's taken me this long. I started this Buffy game that I'm running um uh back in September and. It's taken me this many years, really, to find another group that shares the same attitude of enthusiastically being into telling their own story. And there's something else that comes from that that I appreciate so much, is that um, with this Buffy game... Okay, I'm going to interrupt myself to sidetrack for a moment. Oh, boy. One One of the things that I really like about this... Monster of the Week system and running a Buffy game is that the game is based on a TV show and we feel like we are creating a TV show rather than creating a story that is hyper-realistic. And that gives us access to so many, or comfort with, so many tropes and tools of the genre that allow us to tell a better story. We call our sessions, episodes, and the story arcs, seasons, and when we're describing the way that things happen in the moment, people will reference camera angles and and sets and so on. And a lot of the abilities in Monster of the Week are intentionally cinematic. One of the abilities that your big bad monster can have is to just escape. It just escapes, gets (laughs) away, it'll come back later. Monster of the Week specifically frames things in, in terms of like scenes too, doesn't it? Yes. And so... It can, if you're coming from a very hyper-realistic perspective, it can be very frustrating if your slayer is fighting a demon and then the demon walks out of the room and goes outside, she rushes after it and it's just gone. And then you want to start kind of getting into movement speeds and ranges and all of these kind of nitty-gritty mechanical aspects that make you feel frustrated with the fact that the monster escaped. But when you view it from a narrative perspective, from a film perspective... We're just able to connect into every time you've ever seen a TV show that had that trope where somebody ran out a door and somebody was five seconds behind them and they run outside and they're just gone and the character is perfectly okay with this fact and just gives up the chase. They're just like, well, guess we lost them. It's not necessarily satisfyingly realistic, but it's satisfyingly narrative. And having everybody on the same page that we're creating a story that is greater than the sum of any one of your characters means that players are happier and more comfortable buying into a story that isn't necessarily about their individual character being the star of the show. You mentioned earlier, though, that there are a lot of other moving parts inside of like a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Like, sure, that that, uh, villain uses their escape thing, but you have that Slayer that says, well, the villain dropped this. Yeah. Exactly. So it's about moving forward from that point, right? 
And I think that that's one of the reasons that I've never connected well with D&D style games that are so laboriously mechanical, because it feels as though both the GM and the players are kind of trying to out rules lawyer one another to <laughs> know the intricacies of the system well enough to be able to say, ah, but, and in a more relaxed gaming system we haven't mentioned it i don't know if you have talked about it before but i'm a huge fan of the genesis system as well it's too bad kevin's not here for this recording because kevin is also a huge huge advocate of the genesis system and i like it for the same reasons that it has a dice system that encourages the players to roll dice and then introduce narrative elements every time they roll dice but allison i don't want triumphs i want more successes <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I can understand agreeing with you on that point, but uh, advantages and threats just mean that you end up creating a richer world because of it. Um, uh, sorry, but to go back to what you were saying about the, the moving parts and the players and the GM both having narrative affecting abilities, I think when you when you cut out the idea that everything has to happen in exactly five foot range increments and that people can just introduce elements to the narrative the gm who has always had that power and always will have that power in every setting no matter what the rules are suddenly doesn't feel quite so arbitrary when they say yep this thing just happens because it's an accepted thing that everybody in this game gets to say well this thing also just happens and we all feel like we have agency in what it is that we're introducing and contributing to the story so the other um point that I think that I interrupted myself from making was the idea that when everybody sees what we're doing as a collaborative narrative, when everybody is working together to tell a story and that they have a responsibility to that story above and beyond just what their individual character does, if all you're in charge of is your character and that is your world, it can be a lot more tempting to play the lone wolf who sits at the table by themselves and doesn't interact with other people because that's your character. But when you feel as though you've been handed the responsibility of creating the world and participating in establishing what the story even is, that tends to draw people out beyond just their character and think about how their character is interacting and participating with the broader narrative. And I think that one of the things that has been enormously satisfying in playing with you, Will, and then also with the more recent Buffy game that I've gotten together, is playing with players for whom the narrative supersedes their own character in terms of importance. That they're willing to do things that are bad, that they know are bad for their character, because it works well for the story. Right, sort of as, as counterposed to the classic problem statement, but it's what my character would do. Yes. Yeah which, you know, we've, we've all heard. And it's something that that particular phrase has really stood out to me in the current game that I'm running because I will hear my players say, this is what my character would do. But this other thing makes for a better story, so I'm just going to do that instead. I have more than once found myself saying, you know, I'm going to do this because it's, it's, it's funnier, or it's more fun, it's more interesting. Yeah, it's what my character would do is an excuse to behave selfishly. They don't really reflect on the fact that Plenty of times in fiction will characters behave self-destructively. I was uh, actually going to talk about uh, how that's a, one of the reasons why I like having Tom in my games is because Tom will engage in the, the reckless behavior that's like more fun, um, often to the detriment of his own characters. Like the time he uh, 
he he know he knew that doing the thing was going to give his character brain spiders, and he and he still did it anyways because he wanted to see what the brain spiders were like. <laughs> Spoilers, they were not good. And I only I only didn't get to pull it off because I forgot to make the role in secret, and everybody else dove on me when they saw what was happening. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I am very much like that as a player as well. And when I build characters, I tend to aggressively min-max them because I want my character to be as powerful as possible to overcome the fact that I know that I'm going to sabotage my own character at every possible opportunity. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's min-maxing, but for like an atypical reason. Yeah, it's like I-, I want to be really good at something because I'm going to aggressively play into the things that I'm terrible at. So I need to have some way of offsetting that so that I'm not just completely useless all the time. I think that if people are playing in games and they haven't tried that, if they haven't ever put themselves in a situation to the detriment of their own character because they want to do well, because they want to, either because they want to quote unquote win the game or simply because they feel such an affinity towards their character that they don't want anything bad to happen to them, I would highly recommend for everybody to just try it. And I think that playing in a game that gives a player more agency over the broader story encourages them to widen their perspective a little bit so that they no longer feel quite so beholden to one character, like that character is their baby and their responsibility and they have to look out for them. And looking out further a little bit to the narrative is your baby and you have a responsibility to the story Oh, that's an interesting idea that instead of it being, this is my character, you say, this is our story. Yeah, exactly. And I think when it becomes our story rather than my character, well, I mean, like, think of any piece of media that you've enjoyed, book, TV show, movie, chances are there's a point in that story, because there's a point in just about every story, where a character that you care about does something stupid or self-damaging or that's not in their best interest, that causes complications, that leads to a plot, that leads to character growth and development and interesting moments. Characters in fiction who are perfect and get everything right tend to be quite boring, and we tend to be drawn to characters that have failings and foibles and stumble over themselves because we enjoy watching them pick themselves back up. And then when we jump into creating our own narrative, it's so tempting to just try and make a character who's good at everything because we we care about them and we don't want to see them stumble. But if we can see them as characters in a story, it's often really satisfying to see them stumble so we can see them pick themselves back up and do even better. If you don't have any uh, homemade conflicts, Torbot is just fine. (laughs) Nice. Something, this doesn't necessarily work for everybody, so I wouldn't say that this is a universal tip. But if it's not something that you've ever considered... Something that I very much enjoy doing when I am creating a character is I will attempt to answer the question, what is something that I know about this character that they do not know about themselves? That's pretty good. I love it when my characters have secrets from themselves because usually that secret will be, you know, oh, they think they're really good at this thing, but they're actually not as good as they think they are. Or they they think that they come from this powerful background, but there's actually drama and conflict in it that they don't know about. I'm, I'm deliberately setting the seeds for a conflict that hasn't come to their attention yet, but it's on the horizon. And that gives me something to work towards, and it also gives the GM 
inspiration for things that they can throw at my character where maybe a, a, a specific person will show up and my character won't really understand their significance, but I know that they're tied into this plot that's been going on in my character's, the background of my character's backstory. And so there can be this whole, like, there's just so many things that can draw you into new narrative avenues and new stories, uh, because when we know everything, we're inclined to do everything well. But when we don't know what's going on, there's a lot more potential for failing in interesting and creative ways. <laughs>